0: Welcome to the Earth One Two radio show. This week Savitri and Billy are in Greece and they're going to send us a quick message before we get on with the show which was pre-recorded just last week. So here is Savi, Billy and Lena from Greece.
1: Hi, this is Savitri D. I'm here in Athens, Greece in a little apartment on the northern edge of Exarchia. An anarchist, well, traditionally anarchist, neighborhood in Athens. Uh, We've been here just a couple of days. It's very hot and very bright. We're learning a lot. It's remarkable to walk around in a city that's alive the way Athens is, where the political value, the philosophical position, the explicitly stated um, uh, radicalism... It's just everywhere around you and where people are so willing to engage with politics and morality, I would say. We worked tonight with uh, 12 singers who were joining the Stop Shopping Choir while we're here performing, just wonderful people, all different kinds of people. Once again, we sat in a circle and sang, and it was so wonderful. But for now, I'll just ask Billy a few questions and Lena a few questions and you'll get a sense of our journey. We haven't been here long enough to share much with you. And Billy, how's it been in Athens?
2: Well, this is a very exciting place. This is the conclusion of our second day. So much is being revealed hour by hour. Now I just was in my first amphitheater below the Acropolis with Lena, Beethoven's third, crystal clear against the old stones.
1: What about Athens? What do you find remarkable about this place?
2: Well, I have, you know, I have to say that the, the uh, battle with the EU uh, and its history of its progressive politics, its uprising in the early 70s, uh, and then its role in the time of the Indignado and in the time of uh, Occupy Wall Street. It was one of the beacons. The people here, the history here, the bookstores here, the graffiti, the way people talk.
1: It's, uh, what do you mean by that? The the way people talk.
2: It just feels alive. It uh, it's alive in its uh, in its public spaces. It's alive in, in its you know sidewalk cafes. The Exarchia neighborhood's my favorite. Lots of squats. Lots of uh, self-made neighborhoods.
1: Do you think the philosophical tradition of Greece uh, is alive today?
2: Was the birthplace of democracy, or or you mean this re- the, the more recent radicalism?
1: I just mean the ability of an individual or many individuals to think philosophically, to separate reality from themselves and say their emotional experience or for their emotional experience to be embedded in a philosophical concept or philosophical philosophical position.
2: You can feel palpably this intellectual life. You can feel the radical conversations and the uh, sexy commitment that everybody has. On the other hand, there is a Hopelessness isn't the right word, but a—you can tell that that people are beaten up. The government they voted in finally that was toying with the idea of leaving the euro has tacked towards the center, disappointing lots of folks. The the deal they've made with the EU is still a ruled by the international banks, the hedge fund people, and so forth. So you can feel that in the air. You can feel that. What do you mean?
1: You can feel it. You you mean. You you think people seem broke, they seem unhappy, resigned to an economic condition. What do you mean you can feel it in the air?
2: Well, after 48 hours, um, you know, I reserve the right to... It's it's unfolding by the hour, as I said. I feel a, a tremendous energy, a tremendous history. I'm learning so much from this dramaturg a comedian translator that I'm working with, Dimitri, Dimitris uh, Dimopoulos, who will be performing, and we're gonna kind of do my sermon mic-check style back and forth. He'll have a thought, I'll have a thought, I'll have a thought, he'll have a thought. Then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so We had our first rehearsal today. Uh, he's, he's tremendous, I'm just learning so much from him. But yes, the bullying of Germany in particular, but the EU generally, Brussels, uh, you can feel it in the air. You can feel the people have been insulted. A lack of respect and a, a way—a way that people registered their compassion for each other—was uh, in the kind of quasi-socialist world that they had created after World War II, and for these bankers to come in and declare them really unfit. You know, the the, the whole language of the whole prejudice against uh, the Greeks. Uh, indeed, a lot of the a lot of the people in. Uh, Italy and Spain also feel the same way about the the Northern Europeans' um, attitudes, uh, their comments about their their work habits. uh,
1: Is it just more of thousands of years of European infighting, or is this something else?
2: I read something else into it. It is an actual political struggle. International banks cannot continue to have this level of control of people's lives. Austerity, the structural adjustments that are ordered by these people who... Uh, have rung up these enormous debts. There is a, a showdown down the line that will tip over into a kind of conflict that Merkel and her ilk cannot maneuver around anymore.
1: But just to get down to basics, like how do you personally feel? Like we're talking about politics, you are talking about Merkel and the EU and big banks, but how do you feel, Bill Tallon, being in Athens, Greece? I mean... What is it for you?
2: Well, I'm going to be here three weeks with you and Lena, and two of those weeks with uh, a fair number of folks from our community, the singers. Uh, So one thing I I feel is a release from the weight of the um, cruelty, the the brutality of the Trump-era immigration police and the politics that is going on right in our country. To be here uh, right now, is I feel like I'm taking a breath. I know that I will go back, and I'm I'm consciously thinking of going back. I know that you and I talk this way about going back, re-energized by being here. But having said that, it's also true that we're going from a city, New York City, which is the top tourist attraction in our country. One element there of it, ironically, being the Statue of Liberty. But then it's also home to at least 700,000 people that the Trump administration considers illegal. And Greece has a very similar program. They are a tremendous object of desire for upper-middle-class travelers and at the same time one of the places that especially Syrians, but also Libyans and uh, people from the Sudan are coming here uh, virtually every day.
1: Thanks for listening, as always. This is The Earth Wants You. Sabatri D. and Reverend Billy. We're here in Athens, Greece, on a hot July day. You can hear the sounds of the cars in the background and the World Cup down the street. (laughs) Although I must say, for a European city, Athens seems remarkably uninterested in the World Cup. And I had someone say to me today, I have no interest in the U.S. Are you kidding? Why would I want to go there with that big baby Trump as president? No interest. And it's just, it's funny how people just, it takes them a few minutes and then when they figure out the kind of American you are, they start talking very openly and readily about the political situation in the U.S. And people are as bothered here as they are there. Uh, The children separated from families is, is Internationally upsetting, let's just say that disturbing and there is shock amongst intellectuals activists artists That that the international community the international governments those who rule the world Are not saying anything. Yeah, and where are they by the way? Why aren't they saying something? It's time isn't it? So More to come from The Earth Wants You. Maybe we'll listen to some music now. And here's an old traditional uh, tune from the north of Greece.
2: The Earth wants you, the Earth needs you, and we need the Earth. This is Reverend Billy with Salvatry D. Welcome, listeners. We welcome you to the Church of Stop Shopping's production of The Earth Wants You. Today, we've got the gray wolf, the Mexican gray wolf, and we've got Sarah Shulman. The, the second, brilliant, the, oh, the wow. brilliant Sarah such Thulman. a teacher. We're so lucky to have her here in the church today. What what will we be talking about with Sarah? Mostly, what what questions do you anticipate you asking? You can talk me?
1: about almost anything with Sarah, but today we'll be talking about the AIDS crisis, ACT UP, and New York City.
2: She is the founder of the uh, the AIDS the ACT UP Archives, special historian teacher. Amen. Of course, the Stop Shopping Choir. But first. The news from the natural world with Savitri D.
1: A researcher from the University of Rhode Island's Graduate School of Oceanography and five other scientists have discovered an active volcanic heat source beneath the Pine Island Glacier in Antarctica. Wrap your head around that. There is an active volcano underneath a glacier in Antarctica and it may be contributing to some of the melting that's going on in Antarctica. The rest, climate change, climate change, climate change. Chinese factories are illegally producing chemicals that damage the ozone layer and the climate. Okay, we knew that, but there's more because I, I don't know if you remember a couple of weeks ago on the news, we talked about this mysterious uh, ozone eating chemical that was found in the sky. No one knows the source of it, but now we do. It was revealed in a survey of manufacturers carried out by the Environmental Investigation Agency and corroborated by the New York Times. Mysterious emissions of banned greenhouse gas traced to Chinese factories. So (laughs) this is a 1987 protocol made in Montreal, I remember it well, I was a teenager at the time, uh, to protect the ozone layer, which was the big, hot environmental issue of that time. It just went
0: away, right? I mean, when I was a kid, the ozone layer was the big, that was the big environmental thing, and then climate change just pushed it out of the way. Well, no,
1: because these, the Montreal protocol, actually, the ozone healed, I
0: remember that, yeah, they said it got better.
1: Yeah. (laughs) It got better, but now there's these mysterious chemicals up there. And, and, sick, uh, it's sick again. <clears throat> so I have this list of cities. These are the the brightest cities in the world um, in which light pollution is the worst. Okay, here we go. Number 10, Tangier, Morocco. Number 9, Helsinki, Finland. Medina, Saudi Arabia. Kazan, Russia. Edmonton, Canada. Calgary, Canada. Kuwait City, Kuwait. Cholabinsk. Russia, I'm sure I'm saying that incorrectly, Chelyabinsk or something, Mecca, I used to live there, Saudi Arabia, St. Petersburg, Russia, these are the brightest cities.
0: (coughs) They forgot to mention Rotary in County Clare. Oh, I did forget to mention that.
1: The population of critically endangered Amur Leopard has topped 100 and has renewed hope of avoiding extinction thanks to massive efforts by the Russian government and the world Wildlife Federation. In a pilot study, crystalline particles of titanium dioxide, the most common white pigment in everyday products ranging from paint to candies, were found in pancreas specimens with type 2 diabetes, suggesting that exposure to the white pigment is associated with the disease. One year after researchers published their work on a cycle Physiological test for autism. A follow-up study confirms its exceptional success in assessing whether a child is on the autism spectrum. A physiological test that supports a clinician's diagnostic process has the potential to lower the age at which children are diagnosed, leading to earlier treatment. Results of the study, which uses an algorithm to predict if a child has autism spectrum disorder based on metabolites in a blood sample. Yes, because uh, intervention early is important with autism coal power versus wind and solar energy debates about the paris climate targets often center around electricity supply yet even in a world of stringent climate policies and a clean power generation the remaining use of fossil fuels in industry transport and heating in buildings could still cause enough co2 emissions to endanger the climate targets agreed on by the international
0: community we knew this right we already we already knew this
1: right it Yeah, there's just really clear evidence that even if we do all the things we say we're going to do, just the regular everyday industry transport and heating in buildings. So that's okay. You wearing a sweater is not going to change this, but wear a sweater. Heavily armed civilian groups have burned and damaged ExxonMobil construction equipment in a land dispute involving a natural gas plant in Papua New Guinea. The civil unrest took place at Wellhead A, part of the PNG-LNG, it's a liquefied natural gas project, very similar to the ones we have here in New York City and along the Atlantic coast. In a statement to Mongabay, an ExxonMobil PNG spokesperson confirmed vandalism to heavy equipment and some camp buildings last week in Angora. Uh, PNG-LNG is the largest infrastructure resource extraction project ever to be developed in New Guinea, according to its website. They began shipments in 2014. Last year it produced 8 and 8.3 million tons of liquefied natural gas, which it exported to Asia. And ExxonMobil is the operator of the $19 billion project. So heavily armed civilian groups in Papua New Guinea. And I'm gonna tell you something, the pictures of these heavily armed civilian groups are uh, terrifying. I mean, I would not want these heavily armed civilian groups to come near my pipeline if i had a pipeline thank you very much for listening to news from the natural world sorry about that
0: as billy and savatri and lena have continued their travels in greece they have allowed me The great responsibility of choosing the music for this week's show, and I have decided to choose a song, unsurprisingly, from Ireland. The song I am choosing is called The West Coast of Clare, written by Andy Irvine, recently covered by Ed Sheeran, the famous pop star, but written originally by Andy Irvine, the great mandolin player. The West Coast of Clare is the location where my parents are at the moment, and it's a beautiful spot along the Atlantic coast of Ireland, where... They call it the Mecca of Irish music because you can hear the most amazing songs in Milltown Malbay and along the coast near Spanish Point. And it's a very mystical, beautiful place. And it's a very mystical, beautiful song which is about to be played into your Thank ears. You so I hope you enjoy I it. And we'll be back after this with more The Earth Wants You.
3: And one of the great things about coming back into this band again is. Not only do the four of us get an opportunity to play the songs again and and the music, but it's also an opportunity for some of our families and some of our children to hear the music for the first time. And that makes it kind of special. So this is Andy's song, The West Coast Declare. I'd find you there, I stood on the white strand, and you were everywhere, vivid memories I thinking
1: Our guest Sarah Schulman, a novelist, playwright, AIDS historian, and currently a distinguished professor of the humanities at the College of Staten Island. Uh, She's a longtime activist in New York City and worked with ACT UP, the Lesbian Avengers, a host of other things, and uh, is the co-founder of the ACT UP oral history project, which uh, you can find online and which I encourage all of you to check out. The Lesbian Avengers, which was a direct action group um uh, which founded the dyke march for instance uh anyway i was reading their action document which is still i think one of the best kind of guides to activism i've ever seen it's it's so uh sort of elegant and it's precision i'm just gonna read a little quote from it when lesbian avengers have an idea for an action they can bring it to the group in two ways one Bring a precise, specific proposal to the floor, or two, come to the floor with a vague idea. Pass around a sign-up sheet for those interested in developing the project, then meet as a committee separately and return to the group with a specific proposal. (laughs) (laughs) Coordinators need to address the following questions. What is the goal of the action? Who are we trying to reach? What is our message? So I just want to say to anyone out there, just Google this document, Lesbian Avengers Action Document. It is a guide to direct action. It's perfect. I think spot on. It doesn't have much about social media in it, but you don't need it because the media part addresses all of that. Um, The Lesbian Avengers, I feel do not get enough attention. Not enough is known about The Lesbian Avengers. Can you talk to us about The Lesbian Avengers? Well,
4: I will say that I wrote that handbook, by the way, a million years ago, even though my name's not on it, because it was, you know, collectively. But um, so the, the issue arose in 1992 is when we founded The Avengers. There were five people who founded it, Maxine Wolf, Anna Maria Simo, Anne McGuire, Marie Honan, and Adesky and myself. Okay, so um, the idea was that we had all been in ACT UP, or some of us had been in ACT UP, and we had brought with us skills that we had learned in the feminist movement before ACT UP. And because of that, we were able to have leadership positions in ACT UP. But then we saw a whole new generation of young queer women coming out into ACT UP who had not had the feminist movement, and they were not developing the same skills. Mm. And that's what basically motivated us. So we started the group and um, because we were all extremely experienced organizers, the group was organized towards action. Now, the, the philosophy there was we're working with an extremely disempowered group of people who had been treated badly their entire lives and had been kept out of power. And so when you're when you're working with that kind of constituency, you have to teach people away from the negative stance, because a lot of times disempowered people think that the only power they have is, th- is to say no. And you have to get people out of that and into the belief that they can have a concept, they can apply it and follow it through. So that's a completely different orientation. So in order to do that, we came up with certain guidelines. One was if you have an idea, you have to do it. Mm -hmm. Like you can't say someone should. (laughs) If you disagree, you have to propose an alternative that's Mm -hmm. viable. You can't just take it down. Mm -hmm. And that there was no theoretical discussion of any kind. Now what's interesting is <laughs> Maxine Wolf she pointed out that theory emerges from practice in other words, if you're organizing an action you have to make a series of decisions mm-hmm. and the way you make those decisions is that your your larger value systems are called in but if you separate theory from practice then you could go on forever and it's incredibly divisive mm-hmm. and there's no point to it so we only talked about what things meant and when we were actually doing something concrete and as long as we kept to these f- these principles we were very successful mm-hmm. when we stopped doing that it fell apart immediately
2: or oh, did, did you stop doing it at one point when you introduced you
1: the theoretical for instance it got
4: yeah people started to debate points
1: the should the should questions what we should or shouldn't or
4: yeah instead of bringing in actions instead of formulating everything around actions
1: i was really happy to see the fire eating ceremony you know <laughs> which i had never seen before and uh, it just so happens that I ran into Jennifer Monson and Jennifer Miller yesterday. And I had <laughs> just seen the video of that meeting fire in one video. Well, <laughs> so oh, they're so. the ones who brought introduced that. That <laughs> was so great.
4: But the lesbian Avengers ran too. It was interesting. At that time, the right wing was doing these anti-gay ballot measures mm-hmm. in states that were very vulnerable because they didn't have, states like Idaho and Maine, right. who didn't have enough out gay people to run campaigns against the ballot oh. measures. So the Avengers came into both those states and brought in volunteers and worked on those campaigns. And one we won and one we lost. And we also started the Dyke March. Interestingly, there was a national march on Wa- gay march on Washington. And when we got there, we handed out these little club cards to t- uh, tell all the lesbians who come from all over the world to meet for this march. And 20,000 people showed up. Oh, wow. <laughs> and we had a march through D.C. without a permit. But what we didn't realize was that all those people were going to go home to their cities and towns and they were going to do it there too and that's why it became a global phenomenon
1: it sounds like you were always concerned about the the lineage the carrying forward of your work and that you took care with your colleagues or your comrades um to do that do you think that comes directly out of the out of queer culture like protecting each other
4: I honestly think it's a Jewish thing <laughs> to be to uh-huh, because sure. I was raised with that yeah but also with AIDS it's a there's a particular burden because so many of our friends are dead right and so there's this issue of making record that they can't make mm-hmm. so you know I was the New York native was the gay male newspaper in New York and I was like their city hall reporter mm-hmm. before AIDS really broke and at that time the issue was trying to get a gay rights bill in New York City. Then AIDS broke, and so I became an AIDS reporter, and I covered very, very early AIDS-related issues. Wow. Like, I covered the closing of the bathhouses, oh. which is a really interesting when you think that why was I assigned to that? I had never been in a bathhouse. But it just shows you how chaotic everything mm-hmm. was. You know, mm-hmm. The reporters themselves were dying, and people didn't know what the stories were, and all this kind of stuff. So I started writing about AIDS in the very early 80s, and You know, I've been writing about it my whole life. And the thing is, a lot of the people that I started with died. So you really feel like you have to tell the story. And like the book I'm writing about, Act Up Now, as I'm writing it, I'm realizing I am the only person who could write this. You know, so there's just this real sense of Mm -hmm. responsibility. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I think uh, for those of us who came to New York afterwards, you know, I was a young teenager when the AIDS crisis began. And I remember reading about it. It totally formed my understanding of life and who I was. Um, And then um, I came to New York, and over these 20-some years I've lived here, uh, there are times when I feel the negative space so profoundly of those lost lives and their creative impact on the city. You knew a lot of those people. Um, I look around and I say, what would this look like if they were still here? What work would have taken place? What resistance would we have? To what's happened
4: and also the hundreds of thousands of people whose parents died of AIDS who've never been constituted as a constituency mm. but also I mean in New York City today you know 1,200 to 1,500 people die every year of AIDS mm-hmm. but most of them are not diagnosed until they're in the emergency right. room
1: because they have no health care right you see that a lot yeah we, we see some of that too and I, I think it's, um, it's interesting that the, the um, it's not interesting, it's, ter- it's terrible the, that the culture has been a- able to re it.
3: Right.
4: Well, there's some incredible people out there. There's two black queer journalists, Stephen Thrasher, who writes for The Guardian, and Linda Villarosa, who's really like one of the great geniuses of our culture Mm -hmm. right now, who writes for The New York Times. Mm -hmm. And they have been doing everything they can to get this issue on the table. Linda wrote a piece last summer for The Times Magazine, showing that um, black gay men in the u.s south have higher rates of hiv than any country in the world i read that piece yeah
1: yeah and so what is what is the course to take what what can we what can we do as as cultural producers how can we uh, start that story over do we have to start it over is it a looking back that will bring it back to light or is it a whole new story
4: no i mean you we have to learn from movements in the past that have succeeded what strategies they've used, and consciously make decisions about what we can learn from those strategies mm-hmm. for today. Are mm-hmm. you know the, the central issue around AIDS is that we have no healthcare system, mm-hmm. and you know everyone in America knows that. Right. You know, so that's that's on our agenda,
1: but. But like the tactics, the direct action tactics that ACT UP used, are those even effective now, do you think? I mean, when you look out, do you see them as effective? They're completely effective because they they break the mold. I mean, just look at
4: um, uh, uh, the the victory in Queens yesterday. Uh, this 28-year-old Latina socialist organizer who's now going to go to Congress, mm. she broke the mold. And yeah. that's the thing about ACT UP. When the when the Catholic Church was saying no condoms in the public schools, we went into St. Patrick's Cathedral and disrupted mass. And that's something that you're culturally not supposed to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's doing what, what you're not supposed to do in a way that. Shows that the current institutions and values are things that cannot be maintained mm-hmm. and have to be overwhelmed. Right.
2: Oh, the necessary interruptions.
1: I wanted to ask just a couple questions about your your book, um, Conflict Is Not Abuse. Which uh, you know, I think every activist, everyone should read this book. It's it's really an important look at at a phenomenon that rages in all aspects of our culture. <laughs> Um, but activists in particular, there is a lot to learn from this book about community, about organizing, about relationship. Um, conflict but resolution. Just to start, do you think we are being abused by the government right now? Is this an abusive situation or is it? Well, I mean,
4: the, the, the paradigm that I'm working with in, in conflict is not abuse. Is like when Trump comes on TV and he says that he is, it's, he's a victim of a witch hunt and he's a victim, Mm -hmm. and it's so sad. And this is the rhetoric that is pervasive, that people with power who are perpetrators present themselves as victims and use the language of abuse Mm -hmm. as a Mm smokescreen to hide what they're actually doing. The flip side of it, and the thing that completes the paradigm, is that he points to people, immigrants for example, who have absolutely no role in the victimization of poor white Americans. And yet, blames and projects all of the anxiety and pain that people Mm -hmm. are feeling in falsely accusing people of being abusers Mm -hmm. who actually have no role in creating the pain. Mm -hmm. And this is the structure that we see on every level. We see it, for example, in Israeli state rhetoric. You have Israeli state rhetoric is always describing Palestinians as they're threatening us, they're attacking us we're, we're being victimized by them but actually the Israeli state is a huge military power right. and they are the perpetrators right. and we see this also in interpersonal relationships sometimes people are, sometimes we are in conflicts and conflict is when there's a power struggle but we act like it's abuse which is power over, in other right. words we pretend that we're not participating in creating the problem and so we describe ourselves as being victimized or abused when actually we do have power to make things better. And when we do that, when we pretend that we have no power because we don't want to take responsibility for our own behavior, we make it impossible for people who are actually being abused to be heard, because it whitewashes the whole, right. the whole category. It just takes
1: up all the space. Right. So this is that process of escalation you describe and, I, and I, I see it all around me, right? When you read it, it describes something very clear in our culture and in our relationships. How do you think social media plays into this? Social media has a lot of advantages. Um,
4: I know like for myself, if I wasn't on Facebook, I would never hear from people in Palestine, for example. Mm-hmm. If I was dependent on the New York Times to know what was going on in Palestine, I wouldn't know anything. Mm-hmm. So you know, in terms of, of building relationships across borders and getting mm-hmm. important information, it's crucial. The problem is when we uh, use it as a substitute for actually speaking to other human beings. Mm -hmm. So sometimes people write something on Facebook and it's impulsive or the other person misreads it or you get an email and you don't really understand what the other person is saying but you pretend or project that somehow they're attacking you and then you escalate your anger and then you write them back a mean thing or you block right, them right. and all of that. And actually what should be happening as soon as that there's a misunderstanding on in any kind of non effective media is that people should talk to each other right away. Did you hear that? When there's a conflict, <laughs>
1: talk to the person.
4: Right. Pick up the phone and you don't have to send them an email saying, can I, when can I call you? Just call them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you're, stalling. You're, uh,
2: it's stalling. are so practical, Sarah. When you talked about the uh, avenging lesbians um, rule about uh, theory shouldn't exist without action, it reminds me of this problem we have right now with um, people addicted to iPhones and social media who don't seem to be noticing that two or three doors down their street, uh, their neighbor is being hauled out of his living room with his kids clinging to his leg uh, by Immigration Customs Enforcement. Um,
4: yeah, but that's not a function of social media because you can also use social media to get people over there right away.
2: We haven't done that very well yet. We, we got people to the airport that That's way, a, That's an amazing example. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're, we're having trouble with the uh, predation in the neighborhoods because people are just passive. They're just checked out of real space.
4: Well, you know, technologies can be used for good or for evil and I don't think that they have inherent meaning. It's the same thing with television. When television was first invented, people thought it was going to be this incredible
1: opportunity for mm-hmm. education, mm-hmm.
4: but then it got commodified. Right.
1: And also mm-hmm. there's a locale problem with social media, which we haven't solved, which is like I saw people calling to go to Texas to to help children in Texas last week in New, from New York City. And I thought to myself, you don't have to go to Texas. You can go right down your block. You can go to Harlem. You can help right Right, here. But but there's this whole scale shift that's, it's not that it's inherently problematic. It's just that we don't have that second or third uh, solution, you know, conversation that would say, hey, come on over. Let's work on it here.
4: Yeah, but I would say that maybe it's two different groups of people, like Mm -hmm. back to the old act up simultaneity of response. If some people can go to Texas, great, because it's needed. And if you want to organize something on your block, fantastic.
1: Right. And how do you address in a situation like that? If if you see um, harm, right, if you see a group, uh, hypothetically, you know, if you see another group doing an action that is actually harming a community how does how does the should question fit in when there's harm involved
4: Well, I mean, it's a big discussion right now, and I address this, most of my book addresses this about calling the police. Mm -hmm. I mean, my book is very, very strong about not calling the police. And I do say, like, if I was being stabbed and there was a policeman right there who could stop it, I definitely would want him to stop it. (laughs) Yes. But if someone steals my cell phone, I don't really need to get that person locked up in a box Mm -hmm. because, you know, so, but there's a lot of discussions among white people about calling the police, and that's a very important discussion. Mm You know, so if you, so you know, we have to be self critical in our communities.
1: Yes. And families. Um, and just one last question um, What are you telling young activists right now? What are you talking to them about? When you, I know they must seek you out, right? They must seek you out, and you have students. What, what do you want to tell them right now?
4: It's not what I tell them. It's like I'm usually asking them, like, what is your concrete goal? What are you trying to achieve? And what is the most efficient way of achieving it? Because movements, you know, it's interesting, if you read Dr. Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham Jail, he sets out the structure of how his movement approached issues, and it's almost identical to ACT UP. Mm -hmm. It's like, number one is become the expert on your issue. Number two, design the solution, instead of being infantilized and asking the people with power to solve it for you. And your solution should be reasonable, winnable, and doable. Mm -hmm. Present your solution to the powers that be, and if they refuse, You have to do nonviolent civil disobedience in a mode that is creative, that communicates through the media, not to the media, to let the public understand why why your solution is reasonable.
1: There you go, people. There you go. Let's do it. Let's let's leave it on that (laughs) note. Let's do it. Sarah, thank Thank you so so much. much. Thank you for all your (laughs) work and for being with us today. Thank you.
0: Again I've been elected to choose the music for this week's podcast and instead of choosing another Irish tune I've chosen something a little more topical because Billy and Savvy and Lean and a few other members of the Stop Shop and Choir are in Greece, I've chosen a Greek song. The only Greek song I know, other than Eurovision entries, which is Zorba the Greek, the theme from Zorba the Greek, the great film, in the film the moment the song is played is when The main character, an Englishman, has lost all his money. He's lost the girl. He's lost everything. He's completely destitute, and all he has is his friend Zorba, played brilliantly by the late, great Anthony Quinn. And instead of rolling into alcoholism or feeling very sorry for himself, in a great moment of Greek enthusiasm and optimism, Zorba teaches him how to dance. He teaches him how to dance so that's the song you're listening to I think you'll enjoy it
1: Welcome back, listeners. So glad you're with us today. Amen. It's time for Extinction's Got Talent. And today, the Mexican gray wolf, the smallest subspecies of gray wolf living in North America. Its range once extended through southwestern Texas, southern New Mexico, my home state, southeastern Arizona, and as far south as central Mexico. But because ranchers blame them for attacking their livestock, these wolves were very nearly poisoned and trapped out of existence. The last few survivors formed the foundation of a captive breeding program and the wolves were reintroduced into the American Southwest in 1998. Today, about 50 wild wolves roam a much smaller range near the Arizona-New Mexico border, there in the Chiricahua National Forest and the Hilo Wilderness, some of the most beautiful wildland I've ever seen. And poor management and pressure from the livestock industry have stymied recovery and kept the Mexican wolf struggling for its place in the wild. And hear the sound of the Mexican gray wolf.
2: Very beautiful.
1: When my car broke down near the Chiricahua Forest, but that's another story for another time. And I'd like to turn it. You over were on to a date, it,
2: now. You were on a date with a man. No, I wasn't. Don't talk about it.
1: I was trying. It was very complicated. We were trying to get some money to fix a car that had broken down, so we could get home. And then the car we were driving to get the money to fix the other car broke down.
2: <laughs> That's my, that's by the story car of my in life desert. And then throughout this man, the 70s, this
1: man who'd just gotten out of jail picked us up. We were hitchhiking and he had in the passenger seat, he just dumped a bunch of ice down there and there were like 12 beers stuck in the ice, like so he could reach them easily. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he would drink a beer and throw it out the sunroof. It was hair raising, but all, a good memory. Yeah, hilarious now that I survived.
2: Getting money to fix a car to travel. To another car to get more money for a third car. Oh my God. <laughs> With people getting out of jail and jumping in the shotgun seat. Never mind. The all whole that. way. <laughs> Amen.
1: And, and yeah, in good old Sketch, he was waiting for us at the end. And if you have a friend and their nickname is Sketch, forget it, okay? <laughs> Don't get involved.
2: <laughs> I had a friend whose name is Splinter. And you know, there was some pain every time you were around him. There was some. Oh there
0: was don't some say that. I had a friend whose name was Beans, and he got the nickname because in his estate, a load of the lads pinned him down when he was 5 years old and they poured a tin of beans on his head, and teachers called him Beans. Everyone called him Beans. <sighs> what?
2: He just inherited his initial abuse and it it followed him around the rest that of his life. so wrong. If you're listening Beans, how's it going? Beans. Right on Beans. Beans, you want to ride somewhere? We have to get some money to uh, fix the car because there's a Mexican gray wolf staring at me from the top of that mountain. Trying to, like, integrate everything together here, trying to make that whole show come together because I think it's time for my sermon. That's the
1: job of a a preacher. preacher. Synthesis, baby, integration.
2: Make everybody in the church feel uh, wanted because you anticipate their thoughts and sew all the thoughts together and then leave them tingling with, well, I wouldn't say God. In my case, it would be uh, the earth. Earth Earthalluia. Praise be just about Graham forgot off. that's that's who we pray to here we have We have this emergency Which uh, We're trying to <laughs> Bring to that emergency right now Our solution of humor and music and and we we have you know, we're in a veggie-powered car Uh, Under a full moon with wolves baying and we're uh, you know We have ex-cons in the front seat and we're we're trying to find some money to fix another car. I mean we are uh, we're We're making a narrative. We're making a story and and it is something something Approximating the end of life as we know it Everybody's telling us open a window Another person announces another part of the life systems that we they were a part of are, are collapsing. We're just we're just uh, uh, not where we were supposed to be. If you if you look at the old uh, diaries and journals of artists earlier, like in the 20th century, they all have this optimism and there's this assumption that the human project is gradually well terrible interruptions like world war and so forth, but gradually, the human project is enlightened and will get better and better and better. And every once in a while, you'd have, in, in, especially in the United States, you would have these amazing fantasies of, well, in the 21st century, we'll only have to work five minutes a day because everything will be powered by, you know, molecules will just give up their power to us. We, <laughs> now here we are, we're we're in a crisis that uh, uh, resembles medieval, the Dark Ages were probably better than this. <laughs> I shouldn't badmouth the Dark Ages. We we are, uh, we have terrible pain and suffering, uh, premature death, vast swaths of the sky and the ocean are dead. It's here we are, here we are. Muslims are banned. You know, it's just, it's just all uh, coming down upon us right now. It's coming down upon us. We, a, a, a tsunami of meaningless death. And so what do I want to be? I want to be an activist. I want to be an activist. And where do I start? Well, let's see. I'm going to go out that door. I'll meet somebody in the sidewalk. Who also wants to be an activist. And then we'll turn and we'll see a bank, JP Morgan Chase, on the corner. There are more banks in New York right now than Dunkin' Donuts. And we're gonna go over there. We're gonna talk to the Tellers. We're gonna start some activism. We'll perform a song. We'll bring some information. We'll do it right now. We'll start reversing this three trillion dollar bank. Will make this bank something else, just a bunch of people who want to save their lives and the lives of their children. Activism starts here. Earthly.
1: Thank you so much for listening. This is The Earth Wants You with Savitra D and Reverend Billy. Producer Killian Zimmerman.
2: Our interviewee, the redoubtable Sarah Schulman. Thank you, Sarah.